Hello, and welcome for the first time ever to Born in Flames, an exploration of the sounds of protest, or, to use a phrase that's recently come into some ill repute, resistance. Uh, That's music that either forms a call to arms or takes an uncompromising critical lens to the world from which it emerges. Those of us who have read a lot of music criticism um, or music journalism or have just generally um, been in a lot of discussions about music are probably familiar with a number of tropes. These come up um, from time to time. In general, when you're going into either like a war or a new presidency, um, and they're often recycled as puff pieces as kind of ways to sort of recanonize the 60s, the things that we all sort of are familiar with um, in terms of protest music. Um, One of them is why are there no more protest songs? Like you'll see this come up time and time again. You saw this at the beginning of the George W. Bush era, the beginning of the um, Trump era, um, after 9-11, things like that, the war on terror and whatnot. And then there's always the, um, the one that comes up, the best music you're, you're it, 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 it sort of introduced as a salve, right, to um, make people kind of feel a little bit more hopeful going into what is guaranteed to be a dark era by saying that, uh, oh, actually the best music is always written under oppressive circumstances. Um, you know, and they'll point to, you know, music that was being written under Reagan or under Vietnam or whatever it might be and just say, wow, look look at all the music that emerged from that period. That's probably what's going to be happening right now, which, um, you know, as we'll go into, is, is, is not necessarily true. Um, and then there's the idea that music just isn't about anything anymore. Um, you know, it's kind of one of those them darn kids type of things that, um, you know, music is... It, it, it may, may be just a bunch of silly love songs or it might be, um, you know, doing lots of ecstasy or whatever it might be, but um, or just nonsense absurdism. But there's no music that actually stands for anything that actually is about things that are relevant to the world. They say nothing to me about my life, as um, a Mancunian once said. And I'm the disco. These are all unequivocally false notions that I hope to disabuse um, throughout this series. So we're going to be taking a look at music that is, uh, as we said, critical of the world around it. And we're going to try to avoid songs for which there is not really much more left to say. Um, I, I, you know, your revolutions, your redemption songs, your what's going on, your this land is your land. Stuff that, you know, everybody kind of has talked about to death. We want to try to focus a little bit deeper into the canon and focus through the lens of a single song. Um, Though I'll be talking about more than just the song itself. Um, This is not Song Exploder uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but I hope to use the frame of a single song to kind of center some of the ideas 
uh, and ground, at least ground myself from going off into wild tangents that may be more interesting than the subject matter at hand. But, you know, okay, maybe I'll allow myself a little bit of that too. Um, But we're entering a period now where music seems to be struggling to regain some of the cultural influence and legitimacy that it once had. And I think that there are a lot of people who are just awaiting that period as if it is almost something that is going to, music is going to be great again, right? So, it, it, and this this is something that might be hard for younger listeners to even imagine. Um, but not too long ago, music was by far the most, the most urgent, universal, and important cultural force in the world. And that's not hyperbole at all. It, mu- music had been centered for so long that it almost was kind of second nature to think that music should be influencing and shaping culture in in these wild ways. And a lot of that was specifically written into the ledger um, by outlets like Rolling Stone magazine and, and whatnot. But it was also something that culturally we bought hook, line, and sinker. You know, when we performed our We Are the Worlds and our Live Aids and stuff like that, we understood those to be uh, important events um, because the power of music had that sort of uh, grasp on, on not just America, but the world. <clears throat> so while today, while we're not lacking in celebrities and superstars, um, their import as cultural figures in many ways is surrogate to their status as artists. So in the heyday of celebrities, one couldn't imagine somebody who, let's say, knew of a celebrity like Michael Jackson but hadn't heard their music. It seemed, yet it seems pretty easy to conceive of plenty of folks who would know somebody like the Carters, uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce, yet who are not at all or only mildly familiar with their back catalog, who couldn't tell you the names of their last three albums, as many people probably cannot. Um, I don't know if that would be anybody that'd be listening to this podcast, um, but it certainly is a number of people um, out there existing in culture, whereas I don't think a single person that was alive in 1983-84 wouldn't be able to tell you the number one record at the time, which was Thriller. So music was big, right? It was impactful, and whether it had a social message or not, it was kind of understood to be something that was shaking culture in a way. Um, And a lot of this ties back to the idea of pop music being forged in and of itself as a kind of rebellion. Like when it first appeared on the scene, you know, pop music had made impressions um, specifically on youth culture, but also uh, just kind of across the spectrum. Um, And we look at the changing social mores of the bulk of the 20th century, and and a lot of them are inextricably linked to musical trends. Um, You've got your fashion statements um, from like big band jazz flappers, long-haired hippies, body piercings, tattoos, mohawks, um, provocative, hypersexualized outfits. You've got music is, music spaces that allow it to itself to flirt with androgyny or challenge gender norms um, or subvert uh, cis-heteronormative expectations. 
You've got controversies within music that are surrounding censorship, from Elvis Presley's hips to Elvis Costello not uh, doing Radio Radio on Saturday Night Live. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, there's no reason to do this song here. After being asked not to. You've got uh, other controversies with censorship, like the PMRC from Tipper Gore, uh, the congressional hearings on gangster rap. Former Education Secretary William Bennett and the National Congress of Black Women have teamed up to launch a $10,000 ad campaign today with this commercial. Nothing less is at stake than the preservation of uh, civilization. Uh, this stuff by itself will bring down civilization, but it doesn't help. And when you combine it with other trends, popular culture, television, family disintegration, it's not good for America, it's not good for other countries, it's not good for our children, it's not good for our future. The Sister Soldier moment and uh, Body Count's Cop Killer, the refusal of Billboard to print the name of the Sex Pistols with the number one record, um, who had the number one record at the time. Uh, and all the way down to Clear Channel's recommendations on songs not to play after 9-11. So music has always been sort of linked to the ways in which, you know, culture has shifted, and that ties down to even, um, you know, specifically in ways that counterculture was operating in sort of tandem with, with more straight society. Uh, you've got music has always been one that's, sort of champion things before they've gone up above ground, such as uh, the certain chemical enhancements to daily life that mean, need not follow the letter of the law exactly, but may actually be sacral to the Holy Testament of the listening experience from reggae to psychedelic rock to stoner metal to electronic dance music. And then there's even the act of performing music, frequently the site of conflict or protest. Um, there's a lot of riots that happened, you know, at, at music festivals. Uh, there's a lot of demonstrations against the police uh, at music festivals. Music is, takes place at things like Occupy Wall Street. Um, not only Woodstock and Live Aid, um, which is more the idea of change being available in the marketplace uh, for the price of buying a ticket to see a bunch of rock stars, but the idea of concerts being frequent sites of unrest and state violence itself. And then also in the performing performance of music, you'll find things where politicians will sort of go after the types of people that would attend these concerts um, and look at them as uh, sort of obstacles to their political goals. You've got things like the cabaret laws that governed New York lights, nightlife up until very, very recently. The Criminal Justice and Public Order Act of 1994, which happened in the UK and outlawed uh, the public playing of, and I quote, music predominantly characterized by the emission of a succession of repetitive beats. And this bill also had its counterpart in the U.S. Uh, on a piece of legislation that was called the Reducing America's Vulnerability to Ecstasy Act, called the Rave Act, uh, which was co-sponsored by the man currently sitting in the White House. If I were governor of my state or mayor of my town, I would be passing new ordinances relating to stiff criminal penalties for anyone who held a rave, the promoter, the guy who owned the building. I would put the son of a gun in jail. 
arrest the promoter, find a rationale unrelated to drugs. That's the scum who should be put in jail, not just the guy selling the pills. The guy opens up the warehouse, turns off the water, and sells it for five bucks or ten bucks a bottle because it's required. If you find a pacifier, the words you go out to every parent. You find a pacifier in your 14 or 15-year-old kid's, kid's bedroom. bedroom. So music has not only been windswept by um, change, but it's also been the initiator of it. So the expectations of music's capacity may have outgrown its purchase, uh, quite literally, from its power to purchase. Just as elsewhere in America, the music's income grab has continued to grow, with massive celebrities becoming uber-rich and the vast bulk of artists is struggling to get by, um, relying on Bandcamp and Patreon donations, doing music as a second or third gig. And the people who make money off of music are no longer the artists, even, or, or the record labels themselves, although they definitely do make a cut. But the most amount of money streaming through the music industry is going to the big tech firms who merely provide the distribution services to facilitate uh, getting sounds to people's ears, which is not actually that hard to do either. And these tech companies are designed with a specific notion of micro-targeting your tastes and making suggestions that are specifically tailored to you, which means they're reproducing your own personal status quo rather than allowing you to challenge it. So there's already a, a bunch of niche markets for each listening experience that are already out there. Um, and what you're into uh, might fall along that. And, and uh, there, there's quite a long tail of what that might entail. But the, the algorithms know you, and they have you. Um, so getting outside of that is, is, is no longer a matter of breaking on through. It might be a matter of just um, making the right suggestion. It might, it's, it's no longer something that is necessarily going to blow your world as be seen as, as kind of a next logical step. And with the fact that music has been developed to a certain extent throughout the late 20th century to become so extreme that there's scarcely any taboo that can be breached anymore, it's hard to get music to upset a vast swath of people anymore. So today's teenagers are, are being raised by parents who grew up on things like death metal, uh, grew up on things like gangster rap and hardcore punk, noise music, industrial music, music that was loud and aggressive and violent, sexually explicit, or sonically provocative. And that makes it hard to shock on a generational level. We still do here and there. But it makes it a lot more difficult. And even when that happens, it, it, it is catering to such a niche crowd that it doesn't necessarily um, become something that might have the cultural impact as, say, a tomorrow never knows. Or, you know, four minutes and 33 seconds. So occasionally your odd cultural conservative will try to come up with something, right? They'll try to manufacture a region to decommission, uh, you know, WAP from the catalog. But in general, the focus of 
the broad outrage that we're seeing within culture is not on things that are outrageous or that are boundary pushing, but actually on things that are a retreat from boundary pushing, things that are a de-escalation of what we previously allowed, the so-called cancel culture, which like PC before is actually just accountability culture, demanding that creeps and predators have their power redistributed, um, and that old habits, which prioritize derogatory or oppressive norms, can be called into question, or having the gall to suggest that the phallocentric guitar-based canon might need to share some space with women and artists of color and queer artists who've always been on the vanguard of making revolutionary sounds, but were often not recognized for, for doing such. So this conservative cultural backlash shows that rebellion in 2021 may not always take the form of just an incendiary act, which seems easy enough to do, but might actually instead be about just being a little bit more sophisticated in defining what is really rebellious and what is just outlaw branding that disguises status quo concepts like patriarchy, capitalism, and imperialism and outrageous getup. It may be worth taking a look at what punches up towards the establishment, what punches down at the oppressed, and what just punches horizontally in acts that are hostile to notions of solidarity and intersectionality, or what's just kind of pointlessly aggressive. And it seems like the the acts that are getting the most attention right now are ones that are actually doing sort of the critical work um, within the songwriting process. Hey, on my pillow, you think I'm so weak, soft as my skin is, my powers discreet. So. It's in this weird and often confusing landscape uh, that I'm going to try to examine music that ran against the grain of its time, but still has something to say about our time. And we're going to start with a band whose work needs a bit of a wider cultural reassessment, I feel. Um, Their name is Stereolab, and in particular we're going to focus on their 26-year-old song Wow and Flutter off of 1994's Mars Audiac Quintet. Stereo Lab is a band that has a long history, an even longer discography. They've been extremely prolific over the years, and they've put out dozens and dozens of EPs, LPs, singles, splits, compilation tracks, compilations of their compilation tracks, um, side projects. Uh, they had a record label uh, that they started, and. We're going to sort of focus on the period just leading up to Mars Audiac Quintet because it's kind of too long a history to get into in the course of one podcast. We're already, you know, about 20 minutes into this and I just got past the introduction. So um, please join me as we delve into Stereolab. Play. 
Stereolab's road to international success is an odd one. Um, it started out in many ways, as, as a lot of groups do, in kind of more avant-garde roots, but then kind of serviced a little bit of a retreat, and then they were pulled back into making vanguard music later on. Um, so the earliest, you know, we can sort of trace this back was through um, guitarist and main songwriter Tim Gain, who in the early 80s uh, started making industrial cassettes on a label that he called Black Dwarf. Uh, this name, of course, is named after a interstellar object, but given the trend in uh, industrial music at the time, it probably also was meant to be kind of an un PC type of uh, intended to offend type of name. Um, and there was also a, a kind of collective group called Uncommunity that were also making sort of noise music and industrial music um, in Britain, in uh, I, I think in Birmingham at the time. This is a collective who released splits with the likes of uh, Controlled Bleeding and other groups like that. So, um, And they were sort of standing in the shadow of Throbbing Gristle, who are one of the groups that sort of coined the idea of industrial music. When they used to put out their cassettes, they would have a phrase on it called industrial music for industrial people. And they had these sort of very bland, uh, kind of generic layouts on the tapes that would make them look like they were just kind of a can of paint thinner or something like that. It was very specifically a design choice to make it look like they had sort of been manufactured. Um, a lot of the cassettes were recordings of their live music at the time, um, where Throbbing and Gristle would specifically, they would just cut all of the mics and all of the amps at exactly 60 minutes so that they would play a specifically 60-minute show. It would be like, um, you know, hitting the, the union bell for lunch. Tim Gain had been making some of this noisy music and then took a left turn, quite literally, into sort of the more kind of indie post-punk realm with a band called McCarthy. He got together with a gentleman named Malcolm Eden, and Eden had been sort of radicalized by the election of Margaret Thatcher and had taken an interest in Marxism and became explicitly a communist um, during this time. And so they started making this kind of um, a, a little bit more mainstreamed music. It's kind of in the realm of post-punk at the, at the forefront, but then with the success of bands like The Wedding Present and specifically The Smiths, um, whose legacy just looms large over basically all of the music of the 80s. Um, they started making a little bit more of a jangle pop sound. Um, 
but they kept their sharp political bent. Um, you could say if this was if there if there was a Morrissey and Marr of McCarthy, it would have been Eden and Gain, because Eden was the, the lead singer and Gain was kind of the guitarist who did these sort of um, kind of virtuosic, um, although not on the level of Johnny Marr, um, guitar parts uh, within McCarthy. If Morrissey and Marr had been less interested in sort of classic neorealist films and more interested in Karl Marx and Gang of Four. I've been sound asleep for 20 years. If I'm sound asleep for 100 years, she won't wake me. She won't wake me. Yes, that name is explicitly after the Senator Joseph. So this was not a band that was subtle. They were very explicit in their aims. And uh, they laid this out in their um, album title and their artwork and their lyrics. They had songs like The Comrade Era and Red Sleeping Beauty. We are all bourgeois now. The enemy is at home. The procession of popular capitalism. The well-fed point of view. You can kind of see how all of these could be, um, you know, construed. They're, they're like the second title of an essay. Um, you know, there would be, you know, an examination of life in Manchester between 1974 and 1936. The procession of popular capitalism, right? It's the it's the subheader um, is the title of, of kind of a lot of these uh, lyrics. Their final album was an album called Banking, Violence, and the Inner Life Today, um, which almost reads like a pamphlet um, that you might find somebody passing out in the park. In addition to just having these this this very kind of didactic point of view, um, McCarthy was also explicitly antagonistic against the uh, sort of insularity of college rock, as, as it was called in time, or independent music. Um, and they laid this out in in a lot of their songs as well. They had songs like "Boy Meets Girl," "So What," and. Uh, one that's called Nobody Could Care Less About Your Private Life, which I enjoy. Um, and so they had kind of 
stamped out this territory, but didn't really continue to grow. Um, they they kind of got stuck in the Jangle era um, at a time when that had been sort of dying down. You had kind of bands like REM were starting, still kind of going strong, but were starting to experiment with new things. Um, Morrissey had kind of fallen out of fashion a little bit, um, mostly because he was a giant prick. And I think Gain had wanted to move in a different direction. And he got help with this, with the person who sort of joined up with him romantically uh, in the last year of McCarthy's life. This was a woman by the name of Letizia Sadie. I will probably mispronounce that a number of times, but um, Sadie and Gain kind of fell for each other. And Sadie actually wound up singing a song or two and playing on the the final album. So she likes to say that she was she was in the band for about five seconds. But uh, Eden, like a good comrade, uh, looked at his male-dominated group and decided maybe we should have one woman in there. So she she wound up joining the pack for, of McCarthy for a little bit. Take a little time to improve your life. You have it in you, though there are holes in your shoes. Things needn't be so bad. Even the lowest of the low can be a millionaire with a right attitude and a little hard work. Just up the road, the sun will shine. Let these happy thoughts see you through. Mothers, with your arms to your elbows in the suds, try some positive thinking. You will see the joy it brings you. You'll see the wealth it brings. Oh, you young men, you may not have a cent today, but just you wait. Tomorrow, you will be in paradise. Just up the road, the sun will shine. Let these happy thoughts see you through. Around the corner, the sun is shining. Let these happy thoughts see you through. But by this point, the band was essentially over. Um, and Gain was really interested in, in trying new things. Um, and Sadie was game. So she joined up and... Before she did, she uh, you know she she was really inspired by um, Eden's lyrics as well. She McCarthy was her favorite band at the time, so this was not just an accident that she happened to wind up in the group. It was it was something that she was going for. Um, and Eden told her specifically, uh, gave her some advice and said, "Never sing about your heartaches," which is advice that she took to heart, and it's something that was very dominant within Stereolab's music, um, at least until, um, you know, 2003, um, when they had written an album that was kind of in tribute to uh, one of the backup vocalists and instrumentalists, uh, Mary Hansen, who was uh, unfortunately killed in an accident. So in one of the quotes that she, um, Letizia, told uh, Select Magazine in 1995 was, well, the reason I write about things like these, and she's talking about, you know, the kind of political-minded songs that she wrote, is because I don't choose to write a nice, pleasant song about how nice Tim is and set it to a nice, happy tune. Who gives a fuck how happy me and Tim are? We're led into thinking that we're the center of the universe, and I'm trying to correct that. It's not that I'm trying to change humanity in any way. What I would like to see is humanity changing itself. And then she... Kind of the, the next year, she said something very similar. She said, "Can the contradiction?" Um, she was asked actually by Select Magazine, "Can the contradictions of capitalism be exposed in a three-minute pop song?" And she said, "Well, not in three minutes, but I write about seventy-five songs a year, so I can work on it." We need 
Letizia was very political, um, just like Malcolm Eden. Um, and though the songs weren't necess- didn't didn't follow kind of the agitprop of McCarthy, they they weren't necessarily along the same lines of you know kind of mini essays. They did kind of have the same fervor and the same critical lens to them. And Sadie would never consider herself a Marxist. She, she said that she distrusted the religious implications of calling yourself any kind of ist, uh, but a Marxist specifically, although she did admit that um, his theories had sort of colored her worldview. And her main inspiration was by um, a sort of underground French journal uh, called Socialism ou Barbarie, um, or Socialism or Barbarism is the translation. Um, and the main fellow behind that was a guy named Cornelius Castoriadis, and um, he was sort of critical of, you know, communism as it existed at that time, um, as well as capitalism, and had a little bit more of a libertarian socialist outlook uh, on, you know, wanting things like strong uh, trade unions and worker councils and things like that, even though there were other kind of more revolutionary figures that also contributed to uh, socialism uh, such as Guy Debord who was the, the situationist uh, the influential um, head of the situationist international that inspired a lot of movement uh, through, throughout the late 20th century uh, most specifically the um, May 1968 basically shutdown of the French economy under the uh, de Gaulle government so CDA kind of has this perspective although it's it's a little unclear um if you go through her um you know kind of past statements and whatnot because there are times in which um she doesn't seem to be much of a revolutionary and there are times when she um is talking about how she thinks um you know violence is necessary if we're ever going to overcome the the um massive systemic influence of the state but Castoriadis, um, if, we're, if we're to listen to her words and say that you know that he was one of her main influence, had um, kind of described his theories as saying that uh, you know he was he was a philosopher and thought that meaning was derived entirely from the structures that we meanings that we uh, define for ourselves. So we do this through a um, what he called the social imaginary, through through basically an imaginary process where we kind of come up with meaning and then we sort of have this sort of societal camouflage that disguises the fact that the meaning that that there's there's actually no intrinsic merit or value behind the meaning um so 
but everything winds up being governed by those meaning, which makes it hard to sort of radically emerge from the frameworks that are set up uh, under any system, whether it be capitalism or communism. And so I think this is an, an interesting lens to look at um, Stereo Labs music through, you know, because there's also a lot of, you know, appreciation of radical art as well. Um, art that, that challenged meaning uh, throughout the stages, some Dada art and um, letterist art and um, abstract film. Uh, a lot of these things get mentioned uh, throughout the Stereo Lab catalog. started out it really didn't have as many signifiers as it came to it 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 sort of wound up becoming this this kind of thing um you know which uh the rock journalist simon simon reynolds called record catalog rock or something like that or, or or deep catalog rock or something along those lines um because it eventually did sort of touch through all these you know different touchstones throughout musical history but when they started out it was basically a combination of sort of this very dream poppy fuzz guitar sound which was uh very much in vogue at the time um combined with the motoric sound as defined by uh klaus dinger who was the drummer for the band noi which is a german krautrock band um, very repetitive, very kind of processional, moving in kind of rapid succession, but never really sort of going anywhere, more, kind of more about the journey than anything else. So Gain had sort of bought the $60 Farfisa organ, and they started playing this two-chord minimalism, and were sort of building their own thing uh, out of the ruins of McCarthy. They used the kind of twin pairings of Krautrock and Dream Pop. Uh, Krautrock itself had been sort of this genre that emerged um, from German youth, uh, that had been inspired by American music and were rebuilding from the shadow of something obviously very terrible that had happened in their country. Uh, a lot of these were the children of Nazis and were, you know, making music um, 
that had a very apocalyptic outlook and later uh, a little bit more of an optimistic one but they were doing it in within the ruins of of a war that had completely devastated not only the physical landscape but the mental one as well uh and were trying to reckon with the fact that their parents had actively participated in or were at least complicit in allowing some of the worst atrocities that had ever been witnessed and then on the opposite side you had dream pop which was completely a retreat into the imagination which was more a kind of cerebral music that wound up being this very unholy merger of loud masculine music it's almost i, I mean a lot of dream pop albums are they're, they're as heavy as any heavy metal but they're almost like the feminine antidote to to heavy metal because there's a lot of like cooing there's a lot of soft uh softly spoken words that it, it, it's a lot of like extreme emotions that are happening there's a lot of ambience as opposed to a lot of like riffage They, they sort of became, uh, Stereo Lab sort of became one of the bands that people had associated with the first wave of what was known as post-rock. Post-rock was kind of deep listening music. Uh, it was music that was not designed as much for the clubs and certainly not for the charts, um, but more for kind of headphones. It was headphone music and was incorporating new instrumentation into kind of traditional musical structures. One of the home bases of post-rock was the label Too Pure, which came first came to uh, prominence by, um, you know, kind of noise rock art, uh, offshoots of artists um, like PJ Harvey and the Faith Healers and, and sort of gained some prominence with them. Um, and Stereo Labs, even their first recordings could be uh, seen under this umbrella. But they soon became to uh, came to be something of a ground zero of the burgeoning post-rock scene, uh, with bands like Stereo Lab uh, and Sea Feel, Moonshake, Pram, Leica, and Mouse on Mars. So uh, there might be some confusion about what post-rock specifically is. It it it, it kind of gained a different meaning in the latter half of the 90s um, and into the early aughts when it became almost exclusively associated with this sort of billowy, ponderous, uh, epic soundscapes of bands like Explosions in the Sky and Godspeed You Black Emperor and the general output of, of Constellation Records. Those were the sounds that sort of came to define what... Uh, is sort of still now known as post-rock, but that was not always what the sensibility was. In the early 90s, this this was kind of a scene that, um, although they didn't 
sell a whole lot of records wound up being incredibly influential and they captured a moment when grunge and metal and hard rock were in their ascendancy uh, on alternative rock radio and MTV and really kind of signified the idea that this this was sort of the last hurrah of rock. This that that rock had sort of surpassed its usefulness and needed to start to integrate other genres in order to continue to progress forward. Uh, this is something that's almost secondhand now since you barely even see a rock band anymore. But at the time, it was sort of radical. And um, they had taken genres like, I mean, jazz is an obvious one. Uh, it's not necessarily new to do that, but like rave and IDM and ambient and trip hop um, and jungle, which eventually became known as drum and bass, <clears throat> hip hop, things like that, and sort of forged all those into this kind of new bastard hyperization, which which took elements of all, but um, sort of was still rock at its core, although it didn't really sound like anything that, um, you know, a- a- anybody had heard before. Labs case, uh, this actually meant reaching further back into the past to pull out genres that had been discarded. Formerly, genres that were just known mainly as being kitsch, things like exotica and easy listening and moog music and library music. Um, but Gain never thought of these genres as being kitsch. He saw them as sort of secret glimpses into the avant-garde that were shoved into the margins by a kind of raucous culture industry. And people still sought these things out, right? They, they were very popular. You could 
find a lot of these, you, you, especially in the 90s, although they've sort of become collector's items since then, you're able to find a lot of this stuff just kind of sitting on the shelf uh, at your local Goodwill or Salvation Army. So they sort of latched onto this, although they, they kind of got lumped in with the sort of kitsch that Gain was trying to avoid because there were other genres uh, and other artists that were doing exploring these same sounds at the time. And specifically, there was kind of a big movement over in Japan with a genre called Shibuya-kai. And Shibuya-kai featured artists like Cornelius, Fantastic Plastic Machine, Pizzicato 5, Takako Minikawa, uh, Buffalo Daughter, Chibomato, who were sort of on the margins of that. And their intention was was to be kitsch. Uh, they, were, they were having fun in the playground of overflowing american detritus they you know took those salvation army bins that were flooded with herb alpert and peddlers and sergio mendez records and thought that people just used to have more fun than they're having right now and let's let's just explode that sound um almost in a in a sense that's similar to um what you'd see in, in something like hyperpop now Whereas Shibuya Kai was creating something joyous and celebratory, Stereolab was envisioning the same material through a melancholy lens. And if anything, they were approaching the pep of those sounds ironically, as if they were soundtracking the betrayal and the delusion and the alienation itself, using artistic sentiment to mask how deep the malaise had grown under late-stage capitalism. Sadie often spoke of the... She often sang of harsh conditions and incendiary themes, but she did so in a, in a very dulcimer, sunny disposition. Um, if you weren't paying much attention, you, you might even think that these were the same kind of silly love songs that she was specifically rejecting, uh, that she had avoided writing. And this is not necessarily something new. You, you could see this tradition in indie music going back to things like Scritti Politti and Jesus Mary Chain and probably even further back than that. But it was an interesting way that they were able to kind of lure new listeners in, in a way. From the sky with fallen incessant rain of bombs We had nowhere to go but retrieve underground Like Black Dwarf before that and Industrial Records, um, 
Stereolab had its own vanity label as well, and they called it duophonic. And duophonic was one of these terms, like Stereolab itself, that sort of related back to the ways in which technology was sort of sold to the the record-buying public um, throughout the, the, the 50s and the 60s and the 70s the way that they were given these sort of scientific-sounding sound um, names. Uh, Stereolab, duophonic, high-fidelity um, terminology. You were not only a member of the listening public, you were not only a listener, but you were, you were a sophisticated person who, who understood the way in which you were being kind of affected by sounds. And I think a lot of their focus on this, this sort of... Um, some of these you know, for lack of a better word, kitschy sounds um, within in Moog and Exotica and stuff like that, really a way to explore the ways in which in the past there was an attempt to try to make science fiction not that distinct from the world that they were living through. And looking at that through a modern lens, um, especially through a kind of end of history 1990s lens, made it seem all the more alienating that that kind of futuristic utopianism was no longer in existence and in circulation so through duophonic um stereolab released mostly just kind of stereolab adjacent projects uh, you know kind of vanity singles and stuff like that a lot of splits and whatnot <clears throat> there was a band member that had joined uh, sean o'hannigan uh who came from Kind of a McCarthy adjacent um, leftist jangle pop group called Micro Disney, um, and he had his own project called the High Llamas, which he eventually left the uh, Stereo Lab to, to pursue full time. Uh, there was Hersfeld, which was Malcolm Eden's latest post rock project, and then there were a couple uh, oddballs in there. There was a uh, EP called Shimmies and Super Eight, uh, which featured the leftist riot girl band Huggy Bear. Um, who hopefully we'll be talking about that on this podcast at some point. Even though their songs were kind of disposable um, that they had released on Duophonic. And, but even more disposable was a B-side uh, by a French group called Darlin, who were so undercooked that uh, there was one reviewer who referred to these tunes as sounding like Daft Punk. Um, and uh, they would eventually take that name to some infamy. <laughs> They also released uh, recordings by the band Broadcast, uh, who were initially pegged as uh, sort of a stereo lab sound alike. And they're, they're but even though they sort of shared a view of um, you know kind of sonic and um, philosophical lost futures um, that they were interested in exploring, uh, they really had a, 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 a you know personality all of their own um, that's worth exploring more into depth. Um, but you would probably still like them if you like Stereo Lab. Uh, they also shared with um, Broadcast a um, designer named Julian House, uh, whose design aesthetic on Stereo Lab covers and Broadcast liner notes and things like that um, really reflected a sort of retrofuturism that he would eventually develop into kind of his own. 
sound when he would launch the ghost box label um, and then house as the focus group and one of the uh, heads of ghost box uh, along with broadcast would sort of define the uh, genre that was known as ontology uh, that sort of became popular in the, the late aughts so with the sort of exotica and moog records and whatnot um really developed uh further on their ep called the group played space age bachelor pad music space age bachelor pad music was a terminology that had um uh come directly from an uh, esquival record um back in the um i believe in the 50s and um they really were inspired to go back to these sounds by the way that uh, kind of Martin Denny had been uh, explored through Throbbing Gristle on their 20 Jazz Funk Greats album. So another band who was kind of doing sort of vanguard things, but looking at them through a, a, a very kind of modern and very cynical lens. And then their next full length after that EP um, was the album that we're here to talk about today. It's called Mars Audiac Quintet. And so you hear that title, and obviously you've got Mars, which is a faraway planet, and, and the subject of some that imagination, especially back in you know the 60s and, and the 50s. Um, something that brought wonder to, to many a starry-eyed teenager. Uh, or, or a young person back then who are, who are looking at the possibilities of space exploration as um, something that might be in their near future. And then, of course, there's the word quintet, which signifies a five-piece. That's a, uh, just basically the basic structure of the band at the time. It included Tim Gain and uh, Letitia Sede, who we've gone to quite a bit. Also included uh, Mary Hansen, who's one of the primary members of the band throughout their tenure. John O'Hannigan, who we mentioned, who would go on to do the High Llamas, came from Micro Disney. Um, he actually left during this time of the recording, uh, so they sort of went down to a quartet, but uh, I guess quintet had a little bit more of a zing to it, um, as well as keyboardist uh, Catherine Gifford was along uh, for the band. So this was a you know very female-centered band especially for the time um when that was a little bit more rare three women and, and two men and then you've got this word audiac so what is the audiac the audiac is a device that was developed by a harvard dentist named dr wallace gardner in 1959 and he patented this device for dental offices and it was known as the sound that kills pain. Uh, and a popular science article also referred to it as music to drill by. It's basically, you know, you, I, I don't know if they still even do this, but uh, I, I still remember it from when I was a kid. They just basically put a head, pair of headphones on you. Um, and they found that by drowning out the sound of dental drills, by, by you know, blocking the fact that, like, somebody's putting holes in you through your auditory lens, um, that it was an effective way of being kind of an audio placebo, even if people were not administered kind of the gas or the anesthesia, they still found that they reported less pain um, when they were listening to kind of 
pleasant music in the background, and it sort of numbed the sound of what was being done to you. The Audiac device proved a fascinating study for the theoretician Malcolm McLuhan, um, who had written that any sense when stepped up to high intensity can act as an anesthetic for other senses. The dentist can now use the Audiac, induce noise, to remove tactility. The result is a break in the ratio among the senses, a kind of loss of identity. The patient puts on headphones and turns a dial, raising the noise level to the point that he feels no pain from the drill. The selection of a single sense for intense stimulus, or of a single extended, isolated, or amputated sense in technology, is in part the reason for the numbing effect that technology has, as such, has on its makers and users. And so here in the Audiac device was an effective metaphor for what Stereo Lab had set out to accomplish. Here was the idea that beneath the banality of late capitalism's luxury class, there were forces whose intentions were to subtly inoculate you towards suffering. They were using the near past, not as a force for nostalgia, but as a space where the uncanny and the unconscious hid distinct truths about society, often beneath the soft veneer of progress. And the fact that the Audiac Quintet was playing on Mars had evoked the idea of colonialism, too. Rebranded into its 20th century mode as globalization, but introducing into alien cultures Western modes of alienation and control forces. Pop music itself was part of the pacification process. Stereolab's Sonic, which was sweet, cooing French vocals and cool, futuristic instrumentation, was often doing just this was masking the more transgressive messaging that was lying underneath the surface of popular culture. are quite often their their own greatest critics um and stereolab was no exception they they had come up with their terms for themselves like john cage bubblegum and avant-garde mor that put into words better um what they did than anybody at melody maker or enemy or spin magazine could have ever done at the time so they were they were quite knowledgeable of themselves and Mars Audiac Quintet was uh, arguably their, their most powerful record yet. And specifically, this could be seen through the lead-off single, Ping Pong, which was them at their most socialist and uh, at, least, at least their most anti-imperialist with the refrain of bigger slump and bigger wars and a smaller recovery, huger slump and greater wars and a shallower recovery, which is just a weird chorus to have in a, a kind of pop-minded song. But this, uh, you know, Sadie in, in the song calls this out as an economic or economical, as she said, which, you know, sometimes these songs have a little bit of a stilted English uh, to them, uh, an economic cycle of production and ensuing creation of value from the permanent destruction of capital and exploitation of resources and sees that as kind of a ping pong just back and forth as sort of you know the the, the game that's that's rigged because it it can never lose uh as long as you're the one that's sort of getting the contracts to rebuild you can keep destroying 
whenever you need to. Uh, and that's certainly something that we saw play out far after this song was written uh, and are still seeing, seeing to this day as well. It's to the second single off of 1994's Mars Audio Quintet, Wow and Flutter. When you examine those words, you, you hear the word flutter, you think about um, moving with a trembling motion, uh, you think about things like irregular heartbeats, a state of excitement, flapping wings, whatnot. But wow and flutter is actually a, a technical term, one of those things like duophonic and um, stereo lab. Except this is actually a unit of measurement. It's a measurement along analog recording devices, um, like a cassette recorder or a turntable, and it measures the frequency wobble, as it's called, uh, which is caused by fluctuations in speed. So if you are listening to uh, an album and you can hear a change in pitch or a change in tone, um, that means that the speed of the player that you're listening to, if it's a turntable or a cassette player, it's producing an error um, by some kind of you know means of manufacturing or whatever it might be. So it's actually a, a, a way of measuring the fact that something is off um, about your recording. And the song Wow and Flutter begins and it it never seems to end after the way that it begins. It's a series of kind of ascending chords that form fragments, like a almost like a never-ending staircase. They just kind of keep going up, and then they go back to the beginning, and it sort of loops and loops and loops. Um, and here we are in the, the fully avant-garde MOR. Uh, MOR is a, a term for, probably should have defined that before, middle of the road, um, which is one of the uh, names of the songs off the group played Space Age Bachelor Pad music EP um, and really was one of these kind of things that Stereo Labster used to, to kind of auto-critique themselves and so we've got these ascending chords that are going up and down in the song and they're signaling towards a future but it's a future that never comes it's just out of reach um, over the course of this three-minute song and we're caught in these cycles in these endless loops that seem eternal 
imperishable, as the lyrics will later point out, but the scale, but on the scale of your average day, it's just, just, just a three-minute pop song. So you don't really see the, the larger picture. Uh, if you're looking at it from, from the long perspective, from the perspective of uh, the dinosaur, who has also mentioned this song, we're seeing what, what's described as, you know, kind of a, a, a glimpse of human society and, and of, of uh, especially late-term capitalism. And it's just a blip on the radar. I didn't question, I didn't know As far as I'd seen, life was endless When I realized I had to let go We are no more tools as to the rest It's not eternal, imperishable Right on the moon It's not eternal, interminable Progress is a clue I thought I'd be in was born with the world The U.S. flag would float forever The cold opponent did back away The capital will have to follow It's not eternal, imperishable Oh yes, it will go It's not eternal, interminable The dinosaur Now if we're to put this in the, the context of the early 90s, which is when the song was, was written and released, you know, people were around the world that were celebrating the fall of communism as something that they had never viewed as being possible. Um, even though communism had, at that point, not even been around for an entire century, it had already been so cemented that it was something that um, was viewed as never going to happen. It was just kind of always going to be this sort of competing impulse. And, and to a certain extent, we can't necessarily say that, that uh, communism has completely fallen. But the view that this had finally come to pass ran kind of counter to these ideas of permanence that had been running through. And it led, of course, kind of famously on the left to this idea of the end of history, um, which was this famous essay that was written by a theorist called Francis Fukuyama, who kind of became one of the kind of principles of um, what was known as neoliberalism. And he later retracted this, this essay, um, possibly because it received so much attention. Uh, I think there's probably more people who've heard that term than have ever actually even read it. But it was the idea that, that sort of with the fall of communism that we had uh, arrived at a stage when history would stop necessarily happening um, and we would just kind of be in this kind of permanent plateau where liberal democracy um, and Western capitalism would kind of reign supreme and, and you know, we, it, 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 the, the market would kind of sort everything out along the way. Um, we, we had kind of entered into a stage where uh, things were being managed uh, to a certain degree. We, we didn't need these giant ruptures to the system anymore um, because all we needed to do was kind of manage what was going on. And Sadier was looking at all this, all that was going around, and with the fall of communism, she didn't see the end of history. She saw that uh, maybe capitalism would actually be next. And this was an exciting prospect because in the wake of that, who knows what could come next? You know, when she said the, the cold opponent did pack away in the lyrics to Wow and Flutter, 
The next line is, the capital will have to follow. In Wow and Flutter, it begins from this perspective of an opening line that says, I didn't question, I didn't know, as far as I'd seen, life was endless. And this is an interesting perspective. I've, I've tried to wrap my head around exactly where she's coming from here. Because who thinks life is endless? I feel like everybody kind of has this idea of life being something that has a beginning, middle, and an end. So it's hard to think of her as anything but a god in this, if, if we are to take you know kind of a literal perspective. But it's interesting, and I'm not, I'm not exactly sure where that line comes from, but to me it sort of it works as kind of an admission of ignorance, right? It's, it's saying that she didn't question, she didn't know, and she wasn't even thinking about questioning or knowing. She had kind of accepted what had come to her, um, what had been advanced to her, these, these ideas that the cult opponent would not pack away and that capitalism would never follow um, in the footsteps of, of the cult opponent. And it reminds me a little bit of, um, you know, that, that, you know, what were once dubbed Stereo Lab offshoots and broadcast, who would later become quite distinct on their own, who had a song called Until Then, where they uh, had said, there's a place that I never explored, another world we have yet to conquer, and until then, none of us have anything. If you think nothing is yours, and if I think everything belongs to me, sentiment which sounds cynical that we're pretty still that, that we're still pretty stupid in the grand scheme of things but it's actually I, I, I find pretty hopeful and I, I also find this this song wow and flutter pretty helpful because it says that the the horizon is bright because there is still plenty left to learn and we're just kind of you know it's that that sort of um, Socratic idea of being you know wise only when you know how stupid you really are right? how, how, how much of an infant you are in terms of the, the broader knowledge that exists and it's also saying that you know history will have the last laugh it's hard to understand why exactly Sadier had this sentiment in 1994 and 1993 if anything th this was kind of the peak of a change that was happening in culture um, as we mentioned the end of history and and also the rise of neoliberalism with Clintonism in America uh, Blairism was about to take hold in Britain, and even in the native, uh, even in cities, uh, native France, power had kind of turned back to the Rally for the Republic Party, which was a conservative party, um, in its prime minister seat, and they were on the cusp of the reign of Jacques Chirac, and uh, you know eventually Sarkozy, who just got arrested after years of gradually kind of a liberalizing 
mentality of the marketplace through the ostensibly socialist um, Mitterrand party. So here was a, uh, a, a transmission from a period of withdrawal. This was an almost like a secret communique from an obscure post-rock group, uh, even though they were released on a mainstream label, uh, an Electra, and who, you know, Sadie once remarked that she didn't even think her deal with Electra would last, so she kind of thought that this, this was going to be a momentary thing, um, that they might let her release an album or two and let them go, and they actually distributed seven of the band's ten albums. But this is, this is probably why the song still hits for me and why it, because it remains powerful, even in moments of retreat and loss. And it's not really clear whether we're in that right now, right? Because we're entering this this kind of Joe Biden era. And in the post-Trump moment, it's not really clear how the population is going to react. Are they going to keep up their their kind of contempt for the slow pace of change? Or are they going to be like, well, you know, getting things back to normal is going to take some time and, and we're going to, you know, we're just going to, we're, we're more comfortable with the status quo than we are with, with sort of these big ruptures, so we're going to, like, let it ride as much as we can. Um, but WoW and Flutter offer, offers us, you know, whatever era we're in, uh, kind of a bright horizon, um, specifically in the idea that, as she says in the song, IBM, or whatever your stand-in might be here, Amazon, Uber, Tesla, Department of Homeland Security, that these are not born with the world, as she said. Or even more controversially, as she said in the next line, the, that the U.S. flag is going to fly forever. With its 180 military satellites roaming around the globe, it's basically just Rome. And that one day it'll be a minor factoid in the history books. The collapse of empire is possible. This is a song that takes the long view. That all of these institutions are subject to the law of the dinosaurs, as she says. The dinosaur law. None of us right now can see what shape the next meteor will take. But it's going to happen. It's bound to happen um, for very specific reasons that she gets into. She, Sadie, gives this shape by painting these institutions as living symbols. She says, look at the symbols. They are alive. They move, evolve, and then they die. And it's exactly because they have life that we know that they will die. thinks of uh, ideas that were articulated sometime later by um, Mark Fisher in the early days of his K-Punk blog about an idea that connected, of all people, the Dutch philosopher Baruch Spinoza and the experimental beat author William S. Burroughs, that the forces of control in our society act as kind of parasites, and that it was not instructive to think of this as some kind of lofty metaphorical way of describing the world and and ways in which uh, exploitation happens, but to actually think that these are physical manifestations and that they are real creatures that have life cycles. Uh, Fisher said, the most realistic account of capital is also the most cyberpunk. 
Capitalism is best understood not as the product of a human cabal, but as a takeover of the planet by an inhuman parasite entity, neither malevolent nor benign, but implacably locked onto pursuing its one goal, the proliferation of itself. Marx believed that capitalism's agency was not only ostensible, an illusion that could be cashed out in terms of alienated labor, but after cybernetics, complexity theory, and chaos theory, we needn't be so anthropomorphic in our conception of what agency must involve. Capital really is a planet-wide artificial intelligence, feeding matrix-style on the energy of its human slave. In this respect, it's not the failing of individuals, but the assertion of the will of something, as Videodrum claimed, that's far more dangerous, an ideology upon individual that causes things to be the way they are. It has something you don't have, Max. It has a philosophy, and that is what makes it dangerous. And this is why even well-meaning individuals, your, your AOCs, your Bernie Sanders, uh, even your more benevolent CEOs and good managers, are unable to make changes because capitalism is using self-preservation techniques and survival instincts to evolve along the way, finding loopholes to thrive, even despite the existing restraints that might exist in society and finding ways to navigate the natural ways that the human psyche might reject this parasite uh, that's taken hold on, on, you know, its mental capacities. So this, this might make this kaiju style behemoth seem insurmountable, but it actually signals the ways in which it's vulnerable because capital needs us to be compliant, to be willing to surrender our energy and our labor to its every demand. And now before we go much further, I'd like to hear from uh, our good sponsors at Squarespace and ZipRecruiter. No, just kidding. Um, but in the abstract, this none of this signals anything eternal or imperishable. It signals that there is a scared creature in that parasite who understands that we're very aware of how unnatural its hold over our consciousness is. And it too will fall. We can hear this in the wow and flutter in the wow and flutter, both both the song itself and, and the phenomenon, the frequency wobble that shows that there's something off. If there's anything that has defined the past decade or so of life with instant, minute access to all the minor fluctuations of the world through social media, it's that we are aware that something is off in the frequency. The speed of the universe is set at the wrong RPM, and there's manipulative forces behind even the smallest minutiae of our life. But we're not beholden to these, and transmissions like Serialabs give us eternal hope that we're just caught in a tiny fraction of the narrative, but the bigger picture may soon emerge. Progress, as Sadier says, is the clue. The fact that capital continues to render itself more absurd, beyond parody, as is often stated in these days, should show us how close it could be to cracking. After all, we live in a world in the midst of a collective meltdown having a normal one, as, as uh, capital would have us believe. We may proceed in this state of ill health and wither on the vine without the idea of perpetual growth, or we may choose to believe that a better world is possible. But either way, the end is coming. The end of, as Ned Beatty and Network would have said, IBM, NITT, NAT&T, and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide, and Exxon. One vast and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work to serve a common profit. 
You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. And so here's where the protest is viewed not only as just a howl out into the wind, uh, the act of protest, that is, or, or an individual act transforming into collective knowledge vis-a-vis the airwaves, but as a consistency along a larger timeline. This is largely where the protest song exists, since recorded music is both temporal and everlasting. It's something we hear as a fragment in time, but to which we can return again and again. And it takes on new meanings every time you approach it. Perhaps this is why musicians have abandoned the more didactic rendition of a protest song or an anthem where you're kind of locked into a place or time and you're specifically evoking uh, something, you know, or, or, or asking for a specific demand. A song like Wow and Flutter is perpetually in vogue Uh, as long as the dynamics of power remain locked in place. In this series, I'm hoping to explore more moments like this and to give them a new life, and to find out what we haven't questioned and what we didn't know. Uh, Thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you'll join me uh, on the next time I'm Born in Flames. 